Let's stand together if we can for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, down through verse 15. Follow along in your Bibles there. The Bible says, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Do they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the door of the gate and his spittle uh, fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of mad men? that uh, ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And we know that David was released and sent forth because of this uh, theatric display of faking to have lost his mind. Um, He was released because of that. Uh, But this is just one part of the story. This is maybe the most sensational part of uh, the story as it directly involves David. But the title of the sermon this evening is this, The Problem with Situational Ethics. The Problem with Situational Ethics. Let's pray tonight. God, help us to understand uh, exactly why it is that we operate the way we do sometimes and why we bend our beliefs uh, in a given moment in order to uh, help ourselves out of a tough spot or a tight spot. Lord, guide us, help us to know Um, uh, truth from error, and Lord, help us to learn to leave the results up to you and to trust the process of living right. Lord, help us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many people make decisions based on their desired result, and that word ethics comes from the root word ethos, Uh, It's our standard of behavior, it's our belief, uh, it's our own personal moral boundaries, and uh, the ethics that one has very well may change based on the situation they find themselves in. Let me ask us all a question tonight, and please answer back to me here verbally, is lying a sin, yes or no? Yes, lying is a sin. Uh, lying is always a sin. It is never okay to lie. There is never a circumstance where it is okay to lie. The Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness. It leaves no wiggle room in that thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Um, let me give you a scenario here, okay? You've been given, uh, let's see here, you've been given a large amount of your favorite chocolate at work right before you go home. All right? And you say, I don't like chocolate. Well, then, whatever you like, all right? Uh, you've been given a large amount of your favorite chocolate right before you go home, right as you're walking out the door, and uh, you are feeling stingy, and you don't want to share any of this chocolate with your family. And so you eat as much of it as your stomach will allow you to eat, and you still have quite a bit left when you get home. But you're still feeling stingy, and you don't want to share. And it happens to be a hot summer day, and Uh, You can't leave it out in the car, so you sneak it in the house, and you find a place to hide it inside where no one will get it. Now, I don't do this with chocolate, but I may occasionally buy a box of cereal I don't want my kids to have, and I hide that in the house, and then eat it after they go to bed. Amen? 
so, uh, but you're, you've got that chocolate or that candy or that snack of yours hidden away from all family members. And then lo and behold, your spouse discovers a chocolate wrapper. And they ask you, where did this come from? Isn't it funny how family becomes investigative, right? They begin to ask questions and probe and prod. Now, you're left with a choice. Do you just tell the truth and give up the stash? Or do you bend the truth, massage reality? That's just a nice way of saying lie in order to protect your chocolate stash. And um, oftentimes... You uh, may be tempted to say something like, oh, well, I got a piece of chocolate from my manager at the team meeting. That's not totally a lie, right? Right on the way out the door after the team meeting, your manager gave you not a piece of chocolate, but many pieces of chocolate. But we word it very carefully so that we can be right inside the line of not lying, but yet we are misleading We are being deceptive, and you are willing, let's just put it right out there, a half-truth is a whole lie. You're willing to lie to your spouse in order to preserve your chocolate stash. We call that situational ethics. Another way of wording this, I said this in the opening, uh, right before we prayed, uh, prayed, another way to word situational ethics is the phrase, the end justifies the means. Does a positive result or even a godly result mean that the road that you took to get there pleased the Lord? Let me ask you another question, all right? This is a question that has an absolute answer to it. Is it always good when people get saved? Yes, it's always good. When pe- however it happens, whatever brings them to it, it is always good when people give their life to Christ. All right, let me give you another scenario here. All right, we have a big attendance push at the church. We're pushing for a lot of visitors. We're trying to fill the building up. And in part of this attendance push, we're going to have a competition on our church's two bus routes. And so Brother Carson Vara is going to go up against Mrs. Angela Lejeune. And uh, they, the metrics are put in place. And they're going to have a competition to see which bus route uh, can win this competition. And uh, Brother Vara, he rationalizes and reasons that Mrs. Lejeune has a head start because her bus route is more established. His is brand new and just getting off the ground. And, and, and she has an unfair advantage in, in, in this established route. And so he has to reach uh, back and grab extreme measures to win the competition. So Brother Vara, all on his own, draws up a pamphlet and promises a six-pack of beer to any adult, 21 and older, that will come to church. And he heads into his bus route area, and he's passing these things out left and right. Six packs of beer to anyone who will come to church. And lo and behold, he goes and rents the biggest bus he can find. And I mean, that bus is full and overflowing. Uh, it looks like a jeepney in the Philippines. People are on top of the bus. People are just packed in there every which way. And uh, he pulls up on the property, and everybody says, Wow, Brother Vara, how did you, wow, what did you, how is this happening? Now, um, let's say that a bunch of these adults come in the building and they hear the word of God and and they get saved. Let me ask a question this morning or this evening. Is it good for people to come to church? Is it good for people to hear the gospel? 
Is it good for people to get saved? Is it good to bribe them with beer in order to get them here? No. Do the ends justify the means? And I'm afraid for a lot of us, if we look at, we all say no out, out loud. But if we look at a pattern within our lives, oftentimes we live by an end that justifies the means behavior. We are willing to make little compromises along the way. We are willing to bend our ethics along the way, given this situation. Um, 1 Samuel 19 From 1 Samuel 19 through the end of the book, we find David being refined, being refined by God. God is refining him to make him king of Israel. God has allowed wicked King Saul to remain in power for an additional 10 years in order for the purpose of reproving and refining David. David has some weaknesses in his game. David has some shortcomings that need to be uncovered and revealed to David. David has some character flaws that God needs him to get right before he hands him the keys to the Israeli kingdom and lets him be in charge. One of those areas is that David was operating on a ends justify the means situational ethics basis. You say, Pastor, how do you know this? Well, do you remember when he had Jonathan lie for him in last week's sermon? He had Jonathan lie about where he was. He's hiding in the field, but Jonathan tells dad that he's back in, uh, 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 back in Bethlehem with his family at a dinner. What's he doing? He is, he's lying in order to reveal the king's heart. He, he is operating on a end justifies the means situational ethics. He's justifying having his friend lie based on his circumstances and God needs uh, David to get this Right before he makes him king. Now, um, uh, 1 Samuel 20 and 21, or rather 21 and 22, they're rich with all kinds of truth. And we could spend, and I mean weeks, I've read several commentaries on these chapters, and none of the commentaries went in the direction I'm going to take this tonight. Um, I read several commentaries on these chapters and, and, and looked at, at, uh, at the history behind the chapters. There is a lot of rich, rich, rich truth in these chapters, uh, but for the sake of the message this evening, uh, we're not. We're going to look very narrowly at these chapters. Okay, we're going to look very narrowly uh, at this idea of of situational ethics and the danger that comes with living by situational ethics. Uh, let's look closely at these two chapters, and I'm going to pull out five mistakes that we make, five mistakes that David made, five mistakes that we make um, uh, when we operate in this, uh, on the basis of situational ethics. Let's take note tonight. Notice number one, we conspire or scheme. We conspire or scheme. When we are operating by a end justify the means, situational ethics basis, we conspire or scheme. Look back at 1 Samuel 21 and look at verse 1. And let's see how David begins to scheme in order to get his way. The Bible says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said to him, Why art thou alone? And no man with thee. And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, This is a lie, Let no man know any thing of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servant to such and such 
a place. And remember our illustration about the chocolate a little uh, bit ago, how that uh, the you've told your spouse a sort of half-truth, a vague truth. You've been deceptive with how you've handled that loved one in order to kind of hide and, 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 and manipulate and keep your way. David here is being vague with his terminology. He's leaving himself what we'll call plausible deniability. He says, look back there, he says, the king hath commanded me a business. Now, if the king is God, then maybe. Then maybe. But he does not tell Ahimelech, the priest, that God sent him. He says, the king. Now, who do you think Ahimelech is thinking when he says king? Ahimelech is thinking Saul. He's thinking Saul. He is misleading. He is being deceptive. He's playing games with words. He is scheming. He is conspiring in order to get bread to feed his men. This is what we do when we play the game of situational ethics. We have an end in mind that we so desire and we're willing to bend our behavior in order to get that. Now, you say, but David was hungry and his men were hungry. I mean, they're fugitives of the law and they had nowhere else to turn. Their face was hanging up in every restaurant and had they walked in to get food, that would have been reported to the king and they'd have been tracked down and killed. What do you expect them to do, pastor? What What else would you expect them to do? And I would say, while that is true, uh, uh, when we are results-driven, we will be willing to lie and drag others into our lies in order to get the end results. Now, someone who changes their ethics based on the situation is someone who will lie or deceive or conspire or scheme whenever a given situation calls for it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, again, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. No wiggle room. You know what that means? That means regardless of the situation, you are to tell the truth and leave the results up to God. How about Ephesians 4.29? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the ears. God sets the standard at no corrupt communication and we are willing to conspire or scheme in order to get our way. Now I've worked many jobs in my life and one of the first uh, jobs I had in my life was at Burger King. I was a whopper maker at Burger King. Manny's lettuce pickle uh, well, I'm sorry, Manny's lettuce tomato. It's been a while. Pickles, ketchup, onion on a sesame seed bun. All right. And I, I, I worked there a long time. And uh, rather, I only worked there about nine months. But uh, they trained me on, on how to do all that drive through and, and bagging food and taking orders and, and making the food. And, and, I, and I, I worked hard while I was there. They, so if you pull up in a Burger King, I believe it still works this way today, they have a timer right above the drive through window. And the way that timer works, or at least the way it worked at the Burger King I worked at, is when you pull up to the drive through there, there's a plate under the ground, and it registers your car pulling up, and that timer starts. And that timer continues to run until your car pulls off the other time plate that sits by the window. And so if you ever want to drive the people at Burger King crazy when they give you your food, sit there and look through every bag and open every sandwich and make sure they got everything right they're sitting there going, well, you move, you're killing my drive through time here, all right? And uh, nope, I'm not moving until I've checked it all out. So if you ever want to get back at a, anyway, I'm not telling you to do that. But uh, th- that's how those things work. And so uh, uh, they had a competition, uh, which shift 
could have the fastest drive-through time. And we got awarded with a financial bonus if we had the fastest drive-through time for our shift. And so someone got a great idea that when no one was there and it was quiet, that one of the employees could get in their car and could just do laps through the drive-through. In and out, in and out, in and out. I'm talking about your average has gone from four minutes and 30 seconds per car down to about two minutes and 25 seconds because you're registering three to five second drive-through times each time you make a lap there. And, and you know what that is? That's lying. That's lying in order to uh, fudge the numbers so that you can get a bonus in your check. I wasn't the one driving the car. Amen. Um, I told them I didn't think they should do it, but they just laughed at me and kept doing it anyway. You say, well, did you get a bonus in your check? I can neither confirm nor deny. Amen? Uh, but uh, listen, uh, this is the conspiring, the scheming. If you ever meet someone who's a fast talker and, and they're, 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 they're constantly shifty with their words, they're trying to manipulate results because they want the end result and they'll conspire, they'll scheme, they'll lie in order To get it, number one, when we operate by situational ethics, we conspire or scheme. Number two, notice, we are willing to compromise our beliefs. We compromise our beliefs. Look at 1 Samuel 21. Look at verse number three. The Bible says, Now therefore, uh, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand. Or or what there is present. Here David's talking to Ahimelech the priest. And uh, the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. Bread, holy bread. If the young man have kept themselves at least from women, and David answered the priest and said to him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of uh, the young men are holy, and the bread is uh, it is in a manner common. Yea, uh, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen the, uh, that belongeth to Saul. And Edom said, or David said unto Himelech rather, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because uh, the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, which thou slewest in the valley of Elah, uh, behold, it is here wrapped in cloth beside, uh, behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no one other save that, save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. Now, David knew uh, from Old Testament ceremonial law, David knew that he was not to eat this hallowed bread. The priest knew he was not to eat this hallowed bread. But David put the priest in a really tough spot. David pressured the priest and said, Hey, I'm on hasty business for the king, and I don't have my normal entourage with me, and, and we, didn't, we left so fast we didn't have any bread with us, and please give me something to eat. We're, we're starving. And the priest says, Well, all I have is this hallowed bread, this show bread. And if you go back and read ceremonial law, Common men like David were not supposed to eat this. This was off limits. This was out of bounds. But David was willing to bend what he knew was right, was willing to compromise what he knew it was right in order to satisfy his, his flesh. Now, hear, hear me out on this. We all know that compromise is necessary in relationships. 
In fact, no one should ever get their way all the time within a relationship. If you're getting your way all the time, you are selfish. You are selfish. You need to learn to bend. You need to learn to give. You need to learn to compromise. and uh, You need to uh, be willing to make changes in order to make that relationship go. But when it comes to right and wrong, listen to me now, when it comes to right and wrong, compromise is never acceptable. When it comes to right and wrong, compromise is never acceptable. We are always to do what's right regardless of the outcome. We are always to do what's right, regardless of what our flesh says. We're always to do what's right, regardless of extenuating circumstances. Right is right, and wrong is wrong, and we should never, ever, ever blend the two or or justify our poor behavior because of the situation that we find ourselves in. And oftentimes, the results desired are either, listen, I'd even write this down if you're taking notes, oftentimes, the reason why we'll compromise is because the desired results are either self-preservation or self-gratification. Self-preservation or self-gratification. I'm in a bad spot and I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and so I, I, I will sin in this spot right here in order uh, to, to, to preserve my, my well-being. Or I'm willing to sin and cross a moral boundary in order uh, to gratify or satisfy my flesh. And God wants us to stand our ground and do what is right no matter the outcome. Again, situational ethics is result Oriented. Write that down if you're taking notes. Situation ethics is result-oriented. It is willing to throw out what is right in order to achieve a particular result. What does this do? It removes God from the equation altogether. It removes God from the equation altogether. If we trust God... If we really believe that God will take care of us, then we will be focused on the process of doing right and leave the results up to God. We will not compromise what we believe because we know that God is greater uh, than those circumstances. Let me give you a biblical example here. You remember the story of the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace. Could you not say that in that moment it would have been very convenient for them to bend their beliefs, compromise their beliefs, and bend a knee and bow down and say, well, you know, what good am I to God if I'm dead? What good am I to God if I'm thrown in a fiery furnace? You know what they did? They stood when everyone else bowed, and then when they were brought before the king, the king said, let me speak slow and clear. And they said, we're not going to be careful answering you. Uh, You can play that music a thousand times. We will not bow. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, because of right and wrong, we are not going to bow. They didn't care about the situation. They did what was right. And then what did they do? They left the results up to God. They left the results up to God. Here, David is hungry. David's on the run. David is nervous. And David is willing to bend what is right based on his situation. He's willing to compromise what he knows is true, what he knows is right, in order to uh, bring about the results. Why? David, in this scenario, is result-oriented instead of right-oriented. You may say, well, pastor, I believe adultery is wrong. But, you know, my spouse is neglecting my needs and, you know... uh, uh, not been very good to me. And you know what? My spouse cheated on me, so I have every right to cheat on my spouse. You know what you're doing? You are justifying your poor behavior. You are manipulating 
through sin. You say, uh, you may say, I believe that cheating on your taxes is wrong. But you know what? We're behind financially. And if I just leave this one box unchecked on my taxes, my, my tax return is going to double or triple. Or in fact, I'll go from owing to not owing. And, and you know what? I really need that money right now. And you know, the government's got lots of money. You know, the government, they, they, they're, actually, they're not, they don't have lots of money. How many of you follow the national debt, right? They're 30, what, 30, are we 30 trillion dollars? I've lost count. Uh, in fact, that number's just, I, I can't even wrap my mind around what 30 trillion dollars is. But, uh, we, we all, you know, the government, they, they've got lots of money. We'll rationalize and, oh, they're, they're, they've got a multi-trillion dollar. They won't miss a few thousand dollars. Uh, it'll be okay. And we rationalize. We're manipulating and in result, we're compromising our beliefs, and we're not leaving the results up to God. Uh, you may say, I believe that lying is wrong, but, you know, I don't want a tiff with my spouse. I don't want a problem with my parents. I, 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 I don't want there to be a, a, a I don't want the, the apple cart to be tipped over at work. I, I don't want all of the issues that come along. If I were to tell the truth, that would open up a whole can of worms and just create a, a whole problem, a whole bevy of issues. It's just more convenient for me to lie right now and will justify our lying because of the situation that we're in. Um, you may say, I believe that stealing is wrong, but you know, um, I'm going through a, a struggle and a hard time, and you know, that rich Target, that rich Walmart, that rich Home Depot, you know how many, uh, you know how many times you hear, beep, 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 at the checkout register, someone's getting money every single time. There's a beep, 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 and you know how many Walmarts there are across the country? You know how many Targets there are across the country? They won't miss this candy bar, they won't miss this tool, they won't miss this dress, they won't miss this product, and I'm poor, I need this right now, and I must have it. We are compromising our belief in order to justify our behavior, in order to bring about an end result. You get the idea here. David compromised his belief system in order to feed his belly. Instead of trusting God to give him his daily bread, he compromised. He schemed. He lied. He ate bread that was hallowed and that was off limits. When we operate by an end justifies the means point of view, we compromise or scheme. We, uh, uh, rather, we conspire or scheme. We compromise our beliefs. Notice number three, we cower before men. We cower before men. Go back to 1 Samuel 21 and look at verse 10. We're going to read down from 10 through 15. I'm going to stop after every verse or so, verse or two, and, and give you some commentary. Look here at verse 10. The Bible says, And David arose and fled that day. Look here. For fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Look here. He uh, chooses where he's going to go based on his fear of Saul. Now, David is running for his life. And as we can all understand, he is afraid of Saul. Saul has the power of the Israeli government at his full disposal. And he is hunting David to chop off his head. All right, I'm not throwing a single stone at David here. Uh, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have responded in the same way. Could I just tell you tonight, I probably would have responded in the same way. I'm not here to criticize David. I'm here to say that God was trying to refine David. God is turning up the heat under David to show David where he is flawed. He is preparing David 
to be king. And here David is operating by man's rationale, but not by faith in God. Uh, God is trying to teach David through a very difficult set of circumstances not to fear man, but instead to trust God. David, in this passage, is not operating by faith in God, but rather by the fear of man. When we operate by fear, hear me out tonight, when we operate by fear, we make poor choices. David runs from one enemy right into the hands of another. Verse 10, which we just read, tells us that Achish is the king of Gath. Does anyone know who was born in Gath? Goliath was born in Gath. David runs right into the country, that part of the country, Gath is part of Philistia. He runs right into the province of Philistia that hates him the most. He slew their warrior. He slew their hero. He defeated their great famous uh, uh, man. And, And now David is running right into the part of Philistia that cannot stand him. Why? Because he's operating on a basis of fear, and now he's making very poor decisions. Instead of walking by faith, he's walking by fear. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? And David's not the king, but look, even the enemies of Israel know that David's going to be the next king. It's so clear to everyone that they know that David is the perceived uh, man to take up uh, the the kingdomhood there. Look, uh, it says, Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart. Look here, we see David cowering. The Bible says he was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David had put himself in such a bind operating by situational ethics, that now he's going to have to do something extreme in order to save himself. Because David is operating by situational ethics, he has created one giant mess for himself. When I was um, 15 years old, I attended the Bethel Baptist School in Hartzell, Alabama. And we had a maintenance man there named Mitch, uh, Brother Mitch is what we called him, and Brother Mitch was a uh, hyperactive, he had a hyperactive personality, always on the move. I've got a lot of Brother Mitch stories, but Brother Mitch loved to keep things clean, and and Brother Mitch, if he found your stuff laying around uh, after school, he would put it in the lost and found, and then you'd have to pay a quarter for every item that he put in there. And my parents refused to pay the quarter. I had to come up with that quarter myself to pay that. Well, one day after school, I had, uh, was in the gymnasium playing basketball, and I set my stuff down in the gym to play basketball, and I needed to go to the bathroom, and I was not in the, in the restroom for more than two minutes. I mean, it was an in-and-out experience. When I came back, my stuff was gone. Brother Mitch had swept through the gym, He had unfairly gathered my things and tossed them into the lost and found. And I remember just being so worked up and upset over that. And so I resorted to situational ethics. I broke into lost and found. I did. I know I'm a preacher's kid. You've got to watch out for deacon's kids and preacher's kids. Because uh, we know a thing or two. Amen? 
and um, I broke into Lost and Found. I, I, um, I picked the lock, and I got in there, and I, I got my lunchbox, and I got my backpack. I didn't want the... I didn't want the attitude from mom when I got home. I didn't want the, the speech from dad, and I didn't want to pay up the money. And my dad's the school principal, and, and so I waited until the coast was clear. We lived right across the street from the church there, the school, and I went over when no one was around. It was dark, and there were no security cameras back then. I, I got my things out of lost and found, and I thought, well, that, that's how it ought to be. He was wrong to throw my stuff in there to begin with. Well, the next day in class, I got yanked out of class. And I got taken into the principal's office. Dun, dun, dun. This is my dad's office. And you know what? Everyone else that came to the principal's office got a lecture. I didn't get a lecture. I got a whooping. <laughs> um, my dad didn't pull punches with me. Uh, he, he would just fly out, spank me. And so he sat me down and he said, Brother Mitch is sitting there in the other chair. And Brother Mitch says uh, uh, to me and my father, he says, yesterday... I put Richard's stuff in the lost and found, and this morning it was not in there. Did you pay? Did you pay the 25 cents per item? And now I had a decision. I could come clean and do what was right, or out of fear, I could cower and then lie. And so I chose to lie. I said, Yeah, I paid it. And my dad looked at me and said, Really? I said, yeah, because there's a bunch of stuff in there. I mean, it's piled high stuff. I said, I threw two dimes, a nickel, and another quarter in, in frustration, and I grabbed my stuff out. It's, on, it's in that mix of stuff somewhere. My dad said, follow me. So we walked into the lost and found, and he stood there with his arms crossed. He said, find the 50 cents. I was praying God help there to be. Two dimes, a nickel, and a quarter somewhere in all this stuff. And, and I'm pulling stuff out little at a time. We got down to the bottom, and there was no two dimes, nickel, and a quarter anywhere in that room. And my father looked at me and said, you ready to tell me the truth? You ready to tell me the truth? And I put my head down, and I said, I lied to you. You see, what happens is that when we operate by an end justifies means scenario, we just get ourselves in a big, tangled mess. We put ourselves in a place where one lie uh, complicates another lie, brings about another lie. And you know the problem with lying is that you've got to keep all that stuff straight. It's really interesting. If you tell the truth, you're always going to remember the truth. Isn't that how that works? Isn't that interesting how that works? David has found himself in a quite a bad place. Look with me at verse number 13. He says, And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands. I have a visual in my head that goes with this. And scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. He acts like he has rabies. He's, he acts like he's, he's lost his mind. He's, he, he's scratching at the gate, trying to get out. He's, he's spitting up on himself. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see, the man is mad. Whereof then have you brought him to me? Have I need of, of madmen that, uh, that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? And, uh, and uh, shall this fellow come into my house? And we know that uh, David is set free and, and let to go, let to leave. Now, um, how do we know that David learned his lesson here? We know that God is refining David. How do we know 
that David learned his lesson. Well, this is where being a Bible student really is neat, all right? I encourage you later to go read and study in context right here the 34th Psalm. David wrote the 34th Psalm right after this happened. In fact, it says right in the header of the psalm that this was written right when David was set free from Achish. And in that psalm, he talks about how it is better to trust in man, or rather to trust in God. He talks about delighting his soul in the Lord. And the chapter goes on to talk about deliverance and and, and how we need to trust the Lord. We know that David, God was refining David. God is teaching David when you operate uh, by situational ethics, you end up cowering before men because you believe that somehow the end result is up to you and what you can control and what you can handle. And so then when people greater than you come in and challenge that boy, we cower, we fear. And God says, leave the results up to me. Do what's right and trust me. The truth is many people make decisions based on fear. I would say a whole lot of us make decisions based on fear. And some people go to church because they are afraid that if they don't, God is going to in some way hurt them. Everybody listen to me tonight. If that's why you go to church, that's a bad reason to go to church. You don't need to be coming to White Oak Baptist Church because you're afraid that if some reason you quit, God's just going to like uh, 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 pour down some great punishment on you. You ought to come to church because God loves you and you love God. Amen. Amen. That ought to be the motivation for why you live for God. If, if uh, my children walk around all the time flinching and scared and hands up and, and, and wincing and afraid, and all the time Dad's going to come across and smack him in the head or hit him on the behind, and always, uh, I, I better uh, put my chair under the table just right. I better rinse my plate off after dinner. Uh, uh, Dad's going to get me. Dad's coming after me. I'm looking after my shoulder. If that's their attitude, boy, they've got a, the wrong idea of who Dad is. My friend, God is not looking to hit you over the head with a stick every time you step out of line. God loves you. God has the your end result plan. He's greater than any set of circumstances around you. He does not want you to cower before men. He wants you to humble your heart before God. Psalm 118, 8 and 9, David wrote, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. The problem with situational ethics is that, number one, we conspire or scheme. Number two, we compromise our beliefs. Number three, we cower before men. Number four, we attempt to circumvent the will of God. We attempt to circumvent the will of God. Look at 1 Samuel 22 and look at verse number 1. And I'm doing a little bit of reading into this passage here, but for the sake of the message, now bear with me. The Bible says, David therefore departed thence. So he leaves Gath uh, and escaped to the cave Adullam. David later in Second Samuel accounts many of the events that took place in Adullam. And this is just a side note. You remember the story where David's mighty men go and get him water from Bethlehem and and put their own lives at risk to get that water and bring it back to him. And David is so touched by what these men did. He says this water is sacred, and he pours that out as a drink offering before the Lord. I just have to say, 
if uh, David had done that and I had risked my life, I'd have been like, what? I went and got you that water and you just poured it out on the ground? Uh, but uh, David did that because he was so moved by what they did, he offered it to the Lord instead of having it. That happened here in the cave Adullam. But look back with me uh, there at uh, verse uh, number uh, number one, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dolom. And when his brother and all his father's house heard it, uh, they went down hither to him. Now, we do know from Scripture that David is a type of Christ. I'm going to speak to the Bible students, those who uh, enjoy uh, the finer points of theology. I think you'll enjoy uh, this little tidbit, this little sidebar here. Now, uh, from 1 Samuel 22, David, a type of Christ. David was rejected by men just as Jesus was rejected. David's family at first uh, scoffed at him, uh, at, rather scoffed at his anointing, and then later came to accept him, as we see here in verse 1. Again, verse 1 says his brethren in his father's house heard him. Now, uh, back in 17, Eliab and the three oldest boys of Jesse are part of the army. They've, they've now left the ranks of the army, and now they're joining David in the cave. They're joining David, lining up with David. They know that David is the future. Uh, they're coming in agreement. This is just as Jesus' family first scoffed him and then later believed, joining his ranks and standing against Judaism and, and, and standing with Christianity. Look at verse 2. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he, David, became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. David drew to himself the outcasts of society, just like Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. You see here, those who Saul had fallen out of favor with Saul and were outlaws because of Saul's unjust kingdom, they uh, came to David. By the way, you listening tonight? David was a leader of men. Real men came and followed David. And this ragtag army, many of these men would last well into David's kingdom and become his mighty, valiant warriors. Listen, um, valiant men draw to themselves valiant men. Cowards draw Cowards, And that's why Saul had around him feeble cowards, and David drew to himself mighty men. Verse 3, we begin to see where David is still results-oriented. Instead of seeking God's face on what to do with his family, he decides, he decides to take them into Moab. Now, you may remember that David's great-grandmother, her name is Ruth. Ruth from the book of Ruth. Ruth is from Moab and, and, uh, came, uh, bec- uh, and came because Elimelech took Naomi into Moab against the will of God. David is seeking asylum for his family in Moab uh, while he is a, re- a fugitive. Instead of taking this to prayer and trusting God, he decides to be result-oriented. He's not trusting God with his family. He's, he's going to make the decision. He's going to hide them in Moab. He's going to protect them. Why? He's result-oriented. He's operating by situational ethics. Look with me at verse number 3. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. So where was Jesse and, and his mother and, and his siblings? They were hanging out and hiding in Moab until David was established king. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart, and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of 
Harith. Now, David returned from Moab. Many Bible scholars who've studied the life of David closely believe that what David did next is he went to some sort of fort or hideout right by the Dead Sea. And, and he's, he's getting his, his troops in order. He's sort of getting himself arrayed. And, and David has so lost his compass with God that God cannot direct him or tell him where to go. And we'll see in later chapters that David does get hold of God, and God does direct David's uh, uh, direction. But here, David is so out of tune and out of touch with God and his will that God has to send a prophet to David to say, if you stay where you are, you are going to get killed. Go to Judah. Go to Judah. Here is where you ought to be. And uh, the, 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 the prophet in essence says, you need to go that direction. You're, you're all turned around and lost. You need to go that way. David is taking matters into his own hands. He's not submitting to God's will. He's trying on his own uh, to, uh, to, 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 to operate by his will, not God's will. Now, is it possible to circumvent the will of God? Is it possible to circumvent the will of God? Um, in some ways, I would say it is. God wants all men to be saved. But when sinners refuse to accept Christ and they die in their sin, God's will is circumvented. God wants all believers to pray and be holy as we preach this morning. That's God's desire. That's God's will. God's will for you tomorrow morning is that you wake up, you roll out of bed, uh, you get caffeinated if need be, you get on your knees and you pray and you read your Bible. That's God's will. You know what? If you don't do that, you are circumventing God's will, at least temporarily, you are circumventing the will of God. Now, the awesome thing about God is that you can't actually beat him. And uh, you can do evil, you can live evil, but God has a way of using your evil to a greater good and a greater will. Um, it, it's, it's, it's like this. In the Old Testament, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, you remember that story? You're in the story tonight? You all with me? I, I see some of you daydreaming. All right, lock in, lock in. Okay, we're almost done here. Down to, we've got one point left after this. All right, we'll finish this illustration. We'll move on to the last point. Hang in here with me. You remember in the Old Testament when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? It is never God's will to sell someone into slavery. Can we just say that? That is not God's plan. But God took their sin and worked a greater good. And when you are operating outside of God's will... God is greater than your evil. God is greater than your obstinance. God is greater than your sin. And He can work that to a greater good. I've seen God do this in my own life many times where someone mistreated me or I mistreated someone else or I lived, was living in an indulgence or a sin and God came along and He used that uh, for a greater good. And uh, God, and, and that's why I worded the point that way. We attempt, we attempt to circumvent the will of God. Ultimately, God, in the end, always wins. Amen? God always wins. Every time. But when we're operating by situational ethics, we're not operating by the will of God. We're operating by our will. We're not saying I'm going to do right no matter what. We're saying I'll only do right until it becomes inconvenient. And then I'll alter my behavior to get the result I so desire. Proverbs 3.6 tells us that we are not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we are to acknowledge Him. And then what happens? He directs our path. 
He directs our path. You know what that means? That means take your eyes off the end result and put your eyes on what you know you're supposed to do and just do that and leave the results up to God. Let's say the points together here. When we get to uh, the blank on your outline, say it with me. Ready? Number one, we conspire or scheme. Number two, we compromise our beliefs. Number three, we cower before men. Number four, we circumvent the will of God, or we attempt to circumvent the will of God. Number five, and lastly, notice, we create unintended consequences for others. Here's the reality. God is really good at being God. I mean, he's really good at being God. We are terrible at being God. We make a mess of things when we try to be God. When we focus on doing right, we focus on leaving the results up to God. He is really good at making sure all the loose ends tie up neatly. You know a movie is really well produced when you get down to the end of the movie and all of the storylines have been brought to a close. Uh, there is closure in every part of the movie unless they're trying to lead you on to a sequel. And in that case, they'll leave, uh, leave storylines open. But, you know, look, when, uh, when we take matters into our own hands, there are things that are left out of our control that we can't bring closure to, that we can't uh, operate, that we can't fix. But when we just focus on doing right and we leave the, div- the divine stuff up to God and we let him worry about the outcomes... God's really good at making sure that all of those subplots, all of those other storylines, all of the other things that spin off of our behavior, they come about and they land in a way that pleases the Lord. We have to stop trying to play God by our situational ethics. Now, David, back in in chapter uh, number 21, David lied, manipulated the truth, was deceptive with um, uh, Ahimelech, and told him, the king sent me here on on urgent business, and and, and our men are hungry, and I need bread, and, and give me bread, and give me the sword. Well, now, all of a sudden, Ahimelech is going to have some problems. Because um, King Saul is sitting under a tree, and uh, he's paranoid, and he's got a spear in his hand, and he says to his men, you bunch of, you bunch of disloyal servants of mine, I know you're disloyal. You weren't willing to tell me that Jonathan had made a covenant with David. Shame on you. Shame on you. You're not loyal to me. Are you going to go over there and follow David? And I'm giving you the dramatic version of what First Samuel 22 says there. Are you going to go follow David? Is he going to make you captains over hundreds and thousands? I will do that for you. He cannot do that to you. Who amongst you is willing to be loyal to me? And Doeg, who had been imprisoned there uh, and watched the whole event happen with Ahimelech and the showbread and, 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 the, and the sword. The sword was in the cloth near the ephod and, and the sword was given and uh, taken and given to David and the bread was taken and given to David. Doeg comes forth and he lies about what he saw. Now, he did tell the truth about the bread being given, but he uh, implicates that Ahimelech was conspiring with David against the king. And David says, aha, Doeg is willing to 
come forth and be one of my men. And so Ahimelech is called. Ahimelech is brought before the king along with the other priests. Look at 1 Samuel 22 and look at verse number 11. The Bible says, Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came all them to the king. And Saul said, Here now, thou son of Ahitub, and he answered, Here I am, my lord. And, and again, this whole thing is going to broadside, going to totally take um, Ahimelech off, uh, catch him off guard. He has no idea he's done anything uh, to cross the king. Verse 13, And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread, a sword, and here's the lie from Doeg, and hast inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in all thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. He denies that, that, that allegation. Let not the king impute anything into his servant, nor to, um, to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. Why? Because David didn't tell him. 16, And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen, or the soldiers that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hands also is with David, and because they knew uh, when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king, they, they had enough sense not to do this. The servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, the one loyal radical he has, the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And this is tragic. Doeg, the Edomite, turned and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five persons and did wear a linen ephod. Now, make no mistake about it whatsoever, Saul is directly responsible for the death of these priests. It is Saul's fault that these guys are dead. Saul in his paranoia, Saul in his waywardness from the Lord, Saul in his wickedness has gone to such an extreme, he is willing to kill the priests of the Lord. Saul is the one that is guilty. I do not mean in any way to uh, implicate David in what happened to these priests, but can I just say that David is somewhat indirectly responsible for their death? Remember back in chapter 18 where the Bible said over and over again that he had behaved himself wisely? Well, he's not behaving himself wisely here. Because he manipulated the truth with Ahimelech, he's now put Ahimelech in harm's way. Ahimelech has lost his life. When we operate by situational ethics... We create unintended consequences for others. You go off and behave in a way that is contrary to the Bible for that one moment, in that one situation, in order to get a result that you so desire, you have no idea the fallout and the hurt and the pain and the suffering that may come about to others. Doeg would kill not only Ahimelech, but he would then go to the family of Ahimelech and kill all of the priest's wives and children and animals. Genocide was committed 
Now again, Saul and Doeg are responsible for that, but David put them in a bad spot because he was operating on the basis of situational ethics. From the message this evening, I hope you can understand the importance of choosing to do right all the time and leaving the results up to God. Hey, why don't Baptist Church, let's not be pragmatic, but practical in our approach. Let's learn to trust God and do what is right and leave the results up to Him. Bob Jones Sr. of yesteryear preached a famous sermon entitled, Do Right. And in that sermon, he famously said, Do right till the stars fall. Ron Hamilton took that phrase, Do right till the stars fall, and he wrote a song that goes like this, From the very start, have purpose in your heart to do what's right and never question why. Never count the cost, though everything seems lost. The price for doing right is sometimes high. Do right till the stars fall. Do right till the last call. Do right when there's no one else to stand by you. Do right when you're all alone. Do right though it's never known. Do right since you love the Lord. Do right. Do right. Right is always right and wrong is always wrong. And we must learn to separate the two. If you love the right, the Lord will give you light. So seek the right in everything you do. Do right till the stars fall. Do right till the last call. Do right when there's no one else to stand by you. Do right when you're all alone. Do right though it's never known. Do right since you love the Lord. Do right. Do right. Let's not operate by situational ethics. Let's do right and let's leave the results up to God. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. I don't know how or if this hits home with any one of you tonight, but I know that God spoke to me this week about this. I think if we're all honest with ourselves, on some micro level, on some minor level, if not larger than that, we all bend what we believe in a given situation. And you say, oh, it's harmless. It's just a little white lie. With God, there are no little white lies. Little white lies nail Jesus to the cross. Where God is dealing with you tonight, will you just make a determination that you're not going to try to play God and manipulate results, but you're just going to worry about being obedient? You're just going to worry about doing what you know to be right, letting God handle the rest. May God give us discretion and wisdom and discernment to know how to handle these things. Lord, tonight, help us. Show us. Shine a light into the, the most obscure corners of our heart and show us where we fall short. Help us, Lord, to be committed to do right. Guide us now. Spirit of God, work in each of our hearts during this time of invitation. May we make decisions for you in Jesus' name.